welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm Jane Winter, the Account Director from Dietitian Connection, and I'm also an accredited practicing dietitian. Today, I'm joined by Anne-Marie Desai, a dietitian with extensive experience working with patients with chronic kidney disease. We're going to spend some time talking with Anne-Marie about how she's developed her expertise in the area and also getting her insights and some of her knowledge about working with uh, kidney disease clients. Anne-Marie Desai has worked in the area of kidney nutrition for over 20 years, which is a bit frightening because Anne-Marie and I first met when she was a student at Deakin University. She's now highly regarded as a skilled clinician and educator. Anne-Marie gained her expertise in all aspects of kidney nutrition care through training at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and Eastern Health. She's also undertaken further training in the United States, where she worked with leading kidney physicians at Tufts Medical Centre in Boston. Anne-Marie is currently employed at the Royal Melbourne Hospital as a senior dietitian and also consults to Fresenius Kidney Care Malvern, Bebron Renal Care North Melbourne, and has her own private practice, Melbourne Kidney Nutrition. This podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to individual circumstances. The podcast is for information only, and we advise that you exercise your own judgment before deciding to use the information provided. Professional medical advice should be obtained before taking any action. And a special thank you to Abbott for supporting today's podcast episode. So welcome, Anne-Marie, and thanks for joining me today. It's really nice to catch up with you again. Yes, Jane, thanks. Likewise, it's been um, quite a while and it's really nice to reconnect. That's the nice part about dietetics, I suppose. You always um, come back to people that you know. <laughs> exactly. So it's lovely to get a chance to sit down and have a long chat. So when you first graduated as a dietitian back then, um, did you have any idea or hopes about where your career would lead you or where it would go? Yeah, I'm mean, thinking back a while, Jane, but yes, I do. Um, I did want to work in a hospital. I really enjoyed all my clinical placements um, as a student. Um, and at the time, I was particularly interested in intensive care nutrition. And I think I got very fortunate um, to get a grad year at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Um, and in that year, I did six months in intensive care and six months in renal, which was a new um, specialty to me because I hadn't done a lot of renal as a student um, and I really enjoyed um, the working with patients elements of renal and also the biochemistry was something that um, I also enjoyed which is I know not common for some people but I liked oh, yes. it <laughs> yes <laughs> and so then you yeah, did you yeah then did you stay on at the Royal Melbourne or? I did um, continue at the Royal Melbourne for a number of years and then I'm um, well, about three or four years and then I sort of broadened my field a bit and worked at the Royal Children's Hospital in a public health um, initiative that they had running at that time. Um, so that was another sort of experience for me. And I think all of these experiences, sometimes you think, well, that's a big leap from working in a clinical setting and then working in public health, but it all um, does help to build your expertise and provide different skills and, and meeting new people and new ideas, which I think um, is really valuable as well. Um, from the children's, I then, my husband and I had both wanted to have an overseas experience in life and 
um, we chose the United States. It was a um, it was a bit of a big undertaking because it's not very easy to work in the United States as a dietitian. So it did take me uh, quite a while to get my accreditation um, to be able to do that. But it was a very, um, you know, for me, it was a life-changing experience um, professionally and also personally. I think it's a great thing to have, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a stint in another country, then it's a great thing for you as well. So you managed to become a registered dietitian in the United States, which, as you say, is no easy undertaking. And then you managed to secure employment over there? I was very fortunate um, to find myself um, applying for a job at a hospital where they'd had a lot of foreign fellows. So getting a working visa for a dietitian was not such a um, a scary prospect for them. And and I really appreciate that they took me on. Um, And it was, you know, working at Tufts was just a a wonderful experience. And that was in the renal? In renal. So, yes. And what I, I, you know, I was very naive, I have to say. I didn't really understand when I got the job what a prestigious renal department it was to work in and what a privilege it was to work with um, those clinicians. And I learned so much through them, both um, not just about the clinical nature, but also uh, approaching patients and and really listening to patients. And I, and I really appreciate that experience that I had. And so you had the opportunity there to work with a whole range of kidney disease. Was it chronic kidney disease primarily or was it acute and chronic? Predominantly, it was in hemodialysis. So that was sort of my area of expertise. And I think since leaving there, I've expanded my knowledge in the chronic renal failure um, space. But definitely, um, you know, it was, it was, I was very much part of their team and was invited to a lot of their meetings and um, professional development and so forth. And I should also um, mention that it wasn't just the uh, kidney department, I suppose, the division of nephrology that was um, wonderful to work with. I got very lucky with the nutrition department as well because they were a very dedicated team of dietitians. Um, they were very welcoming to me and um, I still count um, you know, Joanna Dewar is one of my close mentors, which I feel very fortunate to be able to say that. Yeah, so you've had the opportunity to see uh, management of kidney disease in the different healthcare settings across Australia and US, which must have been amazing. So let's talk a bit more about uh, chronic kidney disease. And can you tell us, is there an actual definition for CKD? Yes, there is. And I think that's something that's um, very clear nowadays when we have the um, sort of five stages of kidney disease. And that was um, spelt out. Actually, a lot of that work actually came from Tufts, which was interesting. But um, so the five stages of kidney disease, um, you know, from stage one being normal kidney function. And this is really based on a a person's EGFR, which is the glomerular filtration rate. Um, So that's an equation that's developed um, from someone's blood test results that sort of works out uh, what their kidney function is at. So an EGFR of one is basically a normal kidney um, normal kidney function, right down to EGFR of five, which is considered kidney failure. So someone needing either dialysis or looking at palliative care options. Um, in terms of dietitians, when do we step in? Well, most of the time we're referred people around about stage three, which is when they've got a moderate decrease in their EGFR, and that's an EGFR around about 45 to 59. And 45 to 59, that's mils per minute. What's the unit for EGFR? The unit is, um, it's mils per minute and then it's um, for 1.73 
um, meter squared. So it's oh. to do with you. So it's the equation takes in a lot <laughs> of assumptions. I, I know, glad you asked that one. <laughs> it's a little bit of a mouthful. Um, it does take in a lot of assumptions. And I think that's where you do have to be a bit careful with the EGFR. Um, if you're looking at someone's EGFR, it needs to be looking over time. So not just looking at one one reading because it might be an anomaly, um, but also it takes into assumptions about race, about, um, you know, it wouldn't be accurate for someone who's pregnant, for example, children. So there's a lot of, um, it's it's not the definitive, um, but it's obviously a very good screening tool. And what else would you look for in the, in the general patient picture? Like are there other um, symptoms or other things going along with the abnormal EGFR that would lead you to the diagnosis? Um, yes, you would. So you were looking at their creatinine levels as well um, to see if and their urea levels. The other thing is too taking into consideration what disease they have. You know, so if you've got diabetes with an abnormal EGFR, well, you're you know you're you're most likely probably looking at real renal failure. Um, so that's also important to consider. And do we know how um, prevalent um, CKD is in Australia? We we have a reasonable idea. I mean. Kidney failure is one of those things that um, is silent. So most people, unfortunately, don't realise they've got an element of kidney failure um, until for some reason they have a blood test um, taken or there's an indication that their kidneys um, are failing clinically. Um, so in terms of Australia, with the last um, sort of, I suppose, health survey that we did was around 2011 to 2012, which is now getting on to 10 years ago. But at, at that time, it was found that about 1.7 million, so about 10% um, of Australian adults aged you know, 18 and over had some sort of indication of kidney disease. Right. So then if we look at people with diabetes, how common is kidney disease in that population? Again, it's one of those questions that's a, a bit hard to answer in that um, a lot of people don't know they have diabetes and therefore a lot of people wouldn't be aware that they possibly also have um, an element of kidney disease. Um, but what we do know um, is sort of, again, looking at health surveys and so forth, um, that for every one in two people that visits their um, GP who have got um, type 2 diabetes, when they most likely um, would have CKD as well. The other thing we know looking at the other end of um, kidney failure spectrum is that for those um, patients that commenced dialysis in um, 2019, 40% had as their top cause of um, renal failure was um, diabetes. So we, we do know it's very prevalent um, in the diabetic population. Wow. Okay. Then, so if it is that common and nearly 50 or 50 percent of people with diabetes potentially have um, some kind of renal problems is there routine screening that's done or should be done for chronic kidney disease in people with diabetes absolutely so every one to two years um, people with diabetes should be visiting their gp or their nephrologist to have um, routine blood blood testing done just to monitor um, their kidney function um, that that's sort of it's a recommended guideline yeah so every couple of years and then, so if we just step back a bit and you started talking about chronic kidney disease and the stages um, of chronic kidney disease. For, for those of us um, who aren't regularly working um, in this area, can you just give us a bit more explanation about the stages from one through to five and where, for example, dialysis might kick in or you mentioned that dietitians might get involved around stage three, but can you just expand a bit more on the stages? Yeah, absolutely, Jane. So, um, so stages one to five. So, people with um, um, EGFR above ninety would be considered 
to, um, you know, with no obvious kidney damage would be considered to have normal kidney function. So if you had a blood test done and you, your EGFR came back at 95 or 90, um, you know, it'd be no problems at all, um, considering everything else is normal as well. Um, stage two is sort of considered a mild decrease in EGFR, um, and that's around a GF EGFR of 60 to 89. But some people normally would sit in that range, um, depending on if they're a small person, for example, or an, an elderly person, but it might be a stable um, EGFR, and so you wouldn't be overly concerned. Where you start to get a bit more concern is when the EGFR drops below 60, um, and that's considered stage three, which is often divided into A and B, just to make it a little <laughs> bit more complicated. It's a bit like life, isn't it? Um, so um, stage 3A is 45 to 59, um, and stage 3B is 30 to 44. So they've separated those two stages. Often a dietitian will start to get involved. Um, they say ideally stage three, but more often it's stage 3B. So that EGFR of 30 to 40. Stage four is when people are starting to get to a quite reduced amount of kidney function. So that's an EGFR of 15 to 29. And at that stage, um, dietitians are often involved in that people become symptomatic. So something happens, whether it's um, they start to get uremic symptoms, so their taste changes might occur or the nausea or so forth, or it might be their um, potassium might start to go up. And that's often a trigger then um, for a dietitian referral. Um, and then stage five is EGFR less than 15. And at that stage, um, the patient should be actively planning dialysis if that's going to be the route that they are going to go down um, or palliative care. So, or transplant. You've sort of got three options at, at that stage of EGFR. Okay, so if you have um, a person with diabetes um, and CKD, um, is their glycemic control, just their management of diabetes, really important um, for their kidney disease as well? Absolutely. It's, it's the key. So ideally, a person with diabetes would be referred to you before they get to stage four or five, because once they've got there, a lot of damage has already been done and, and you can't undo what has been done. You can only help prevent further damage from occurring. Um, and that can be hard to explain to some people because it's, you know, it's tough to know you've, you've you know, you've come to see me too late. <laughs> it would have been nice to see you two years ago um, when we could have done a bit more work with your diabetes and hopefully prevent you getting to these, um, you know, stages of lower stages of kidney function. So glycemic control um, is most important for people with diabetes in terms of preserving their kidney function. Um, and the, the reason being is that when you've got high levels of um, blood glucose, it, it starts to damage um, capillaries that surround the nephron of the, of, you know, in each kidney. So people often think of kidneys as being a solid organ. Obviously, we um, as um, scientists know that this is not how the kidney is. It's, it's, the kidney is made up of these tiny, um, very fragile nephrons that filter our blood and they're surrounded by capillaries. If these capillaries become damaged, they can become leaky and they let um, protein or albumin um, leak into the into the urine. So often that's another test that is used to measure how someone's kidney function is, is how much um, protein or albumin is spilling into their urine, because that's showing that there is kidney damage um, occurring. Okay, so the first thing when you have someone um, present with uh, diabetes and you've been referred to them because their kidney um, function is declining maybe, is glycemic control the first thing that you would look at uh, or their their diabetes sort of dietary patterns? 
both. So I'd be looking at both. So I'd be looking to see um, what their glycemic control is. So using the normal tests that we, you know, obviously looking at their um you know, their blood glucose level readings, their HbA1c, these type of readings that can give you an idea of how well controlled they are. Um, and that I would be very much targeting that um, to help prevent further kidney damage. So that that's definitely a number one goal for people with CKD and diabetes. Okay, so we've got looking at their glycemic control, but then they've got impaired renal function. So then we need to look at what diet they need for that. And I guess everyone's aware that um, dietary interventions for CKD involve recommendations around protein intake, but is protein restriction still a part of the diet for someone who is not being dialysed? It, it, it is actually, Jane, it's interesting because um, I think we've gone through waves on, on suggesting about protein and how much protein people with CKD in general um, should be eating. Um, when I was a new grad dietitian, we used to put people on quite strict um, protein restrictions routinely. Um, so even down to 0.5 grams um, per kilogram of ideal body weight, that sort of protein restriction. And then this kind of went out of favour and it went out of favour um, to do some research that actually um, looked at following up people that were on low protein diets and then following them through to dialysis. Um, and that's the MDRD study for those um, that are interested. And what that sort of found was that some of these people on these low protein diets, when you followed them up onto dialysis, they didn't live as long. And so that changed the recommendations quite significantly. Um, then recently, that MDRD study was reanalyzed, reanalyzed, that's the word, reanalyzed, um, and further studies was also completed. And what they found was it wasn't necessarily reported or interpreted in the right way that low-protein diets um, were harmful for people with kidney disease. So they've re-looked really at it, and the current recommendations is that, yes, we should be putting people onto um, moderate to low-protein diets, um, and it depends on which guidelines you look at as to how much protein you should be restricting. So what guidelines do you use as okay, your so sort there's of... Two main benchmark. guidelines that I go to. So... Um, the KDOKI guidelines, and so that stands for Kidney Disease Out Outcomes Quality Initiative. Now, this guidelines, the KDOKI group has been around for over 20 years, and they've released numerous guidelines. Most recently, so I think last year in 2020, they released a CKD guideline um, for nutrition. And, and these are international? Well, actually, it's interesting because to date, they had been more US-based, but this most recent KDOKI guideline actually has, um, it is more international and it has Katrina Campbell from Australia on the um, panel. So yes, it's a more international guideline. Um, and this guideline is actually suggesting that we should be restricting protein intake in stage three to five CKD to 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight per day. I also look at another guideline, which is an international guideline, and this is the KDGO guideline, the Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes. And this guideline suggests that we should be restricting to 0.8. So one says 0.6 to 0.8, one says to 0.8, but the consensus that we need to remember is 0.8. And that's what I like to think as a sort of um, a good, safe amount of protein restriction, which when you think about it, is not really a protein restriction because it's about the RDI. Yes. Okay. So 
So what is sort of um, the rationale for why do we want to limit protein in someone's diet if they've got chronic kidney disease? Okay, so the rationale being, um, if we remember our protein metabolism, so when we eat protein, um, you know, obviously digested to amino acids, um, and then what we don't need is excreted as waste, and this waste is urea. Now, if we're eating a lot of nitrogenous foods, such as obviously protein, um, and we're having our kidney, and our kidneys aren't working to their optimum capacity, we can have uh, accumulation of urea, okay? So that's an a toxic accumulation because our body doesn't, you know, normally we get rid of urea. We don't want to hang on mm. to it. Um, and so a high protein diet can cause, um, you know, increase in urea and obviously increase um, work for the kidney. The other thing about a high protein diet is that it can lead to um, hyperfiltration response by the nephron. So if you've got um, a lot of protein coming in, you've got um, hyperfiltration occurring and this can also um, lead to, you know, further kidney damage. So there's two reasons why we're looking at protein restriction. So firstly, is to um, reduce the amount of waste production. So reduce, reduce the amount of urea being produced and also to um, reduce the amount of hyperfiltration done by the kidney. And these two elements that are working together can, can um, reduce the progression of kidney disease. Right, and so what about uh, someone who's actually on dialysis? Do their protein requirements change if you're on hemo or? Absolutely. So it's a completely different diet for people on dialysis because in dialysis, we're, we're recommending a higher protein um, intake. So that's why it's really important that people who are seeing a dietitian um, for a moderate or low protein diet prior to dialysis keep following up with a dietitian post-dialysis because there's a big dietary change that occurs. And what can be the problems if someone continued on a protein restriction but was starting had started dialysis? It'd be malnutrition. So there'd be protein deplete because dialysis, people on dialysis have a slightly higher need for protein because the dialysis um, during the dialysis process, they're actually um, losing small amounts of protein. And it's not large amounts, but if you're dialyzing three times a week or more, it can become significant. Yeah, okay. Okay, so we've got a protein recommendation of around about 0.8 grams per kilo. Um, then what about energy intake? What, what do you do with energy requirements? Okay, so this is where it can get a little bit more complicated and particularly for people with diabetes. So when we're looking at restricting protein, we also don't want people to experience rapid weight loss because if you're experiencing rapid weight loss, you're going to be experiencing muscle catabolism. And you experience muscle catabolism, that's going to increase your urea levels. So you're walking a bit of a tightrope there. Now, oftentimes too, when you're seeing someone, not to generalize, but someone with diabetes and CKD, often they can be a bit overweight. So if you're looking at weight control and weight loss, you're aiming for a very slow weight reduction. You don't want a rapid weight loss. This is not the population you want to put onto a very low calorie diet or something like that. You're looking, you know, good, slow weight loss. If you're not aiming for weight loss, though, then if you're reducing protein intake, you've got to provide extra um, caloric intake or extra energy intake so that you don't have weight loss. Um, in diabetes, it can be tricky because you can't just say, well, let's you know, put a bit of cordial in or a bit of soft drink to bump up those um, non-protein calories. So you're looking at, you know, I often look at fats and oils and try and include more healthy um, uh, fats into the diet to provide those extra non-protein calories. 
Okay, so 0.8 grams per kilo, energy determined by weight status primarily, whether that's energy balance or reduction um, or increase. Um, I've also seen a term written, I don't even know if you use the acronym NEAP, N-E-A-P. I don't really know what that is. Should I know what it is? Uh, and what do I need to know about it? <laughs> okay, so NEAP, yes, it's something we talk more often about um, with kidney disease. Um, it's the net endogenous acid production, but you're welcome to call it NEEP. It makes it a lot easier. <laughs> so that's what I do. Um, so basically, this is when we're looking again about protein. So what we know is that protein foods tend to produce more acid in our body. And that is because um, protein foods, when they're metabolized, so this is like meat and dairy foods, um, metabolized to sulfate, which is acidic in our bodies. And Back to our lovely, um, you know, inc uh, exquisite tiny little nephrons, they don't like to be in an acidic environment. So that's why often um, when they're getting blood test results done and so forth, or um, you're looking at bicarbonate levels and things. But as dietitians, we don't need to get right into that nitty gritty and looking at bicarbonate levels. I think what we need to be aware of is that if we're having a client with a high protein intake, um, then they are going to be producing more acid in their in their blood, they're going to have a higher acid production. And so by reducing that protein intake to, the, again, the 0.8, you're going to be pro producing less acid, which is a good thing for kidneys. Also with that, we have to look at fruit and vegetables. So fruit and vegetables um, are more um, alkaline producing in our bodies. And because of that, that can be protective for kidney function. Um, so often when I'm talking to um, clients about reducing protein, this is another added bonus is that you're going to reduce the amount of acid that you're producing um, in your body and that's going to be protect protective for kidneys as well. Um, and then by introducing more fruit and vegetables, and I think most dietitians are very good at getting clients to eat more fruit and vegetables, it's what we like to do, um, that will also be protective for kidney function as well. So let's just then ramp up the complexity a bit more because we haven't even got to potassium and phosphorus. Um, so should all um, CKD patients be on a potassium-restricted diet? No, is the short answer to that. So <laughs> no, it shouldn't. And I think this is where dietitians working in kidney disease can be the most useful personally because there's so most people who have a diagnosis of kidney disease will hit Google and the first thing that will come up is potassium restriction. And, and this is wrong, um, mainly because we only really need to restrict potassium if there is a clinical need. So if someone has a high potassium level, yes, you need to restrict potassium. If someone has a normal potassium level and they've got CKD, you do not need to restrict potassium. And I see quite a lot of patients that restrict potassium in the belief it's going to help their kidney function. Um, and that's wrong. It won't help their kidney function at all. And in fact, it goes against what we're saying with the NEEP, with the net endogenous mm. acid production. So we don't want to restrict fruit and vegetables because they're protective in kidney function, so long as your potassium levels are normal. So okay. if you see someone's blood test results and the potassium is normal, it's normal and you don't need to worry about potassium at this point. And so what sort of potassium level would you be looking at that would start you restricting the potassium intake or starting to look at it? What's, okay. what's abnormal? 
So it depends on each um, lab, but most um, normal potassium levels would be less than 5.5 is the sort of the cutoff, depending on your lab that you're going to. Um, I start to sort of look at it when people's potassium levels consistently go over five and you start to think, hmm, Things, are, things yeah. might be heading in a direction where we need to start thinking about potassium. Um, you wouldn't necessarily need a, a hard restriction at a potassium of five, but you'd start to consider it. Um, if your potassium level was over 5.5, then yes, you should be looking at potassium restrictions. So on a practical level, how do you manage a patient who has diabetes? Um, you're thinking about they have chronic kidney disease, so you want them to be eating lots of fruit and vegetables because that's good for their NEEP, but it's also good for their glycemic control and their general diet. But they get to a point where they do actually need a potassium restriction, which I guess inherently evolves restriction of some of those things. How do you manage that? How do you keep up the fruit and vegetable intake with the potassium restriction? Okay, so potassium restriction doesn't mean that you need to avoid all fruit and vegetables. It just might mean you need to change some of the fruit and vegetables that you're eating and also looking at, at portion control, obviously, as well. So that's when, um, you know, education off um, the client in terms of low potassium versus med medium potassium versus high potassium fruit and vegetables. And it might be just ensuring, too, they're not doing things um, like, you know, having fruit juices um, or soups. I always think of a soup as being a liquid hot juice, mm -hmm. um, you know, so a lot of, and that's can be quite tough for some of the oldies who like having a hot soup at lunchtime, but it, they, you know, getting a high potassium hit. So education on um, types of fruit and vegetables and trying to pick those lower fruit and vegetables um, in potassium, but also looking at, at the portion control. And I often fall back to um, the Australian dietary, sorry, the Australian dietary guidelines because this is a guideline. It's two fruit, five vegetables, and it's servings of vegetables. It's not just ad lib. You know, you can have five, um, you know, five cauliflowers, for example, it's it's a portion off cauliflower or a portion off broccoli. Um, and that can give people some some sort of set guidelines and portions that they can they can have. So uh bananas contraband for someone on a potassium restriction? Uh, I'm always a person who goes, never say never, <laughs> but yes, they are limited, absolutely. And, and you know, along with the other high potassium um, vegetables like tomatoes and potatoes. So it can be tricky for people. It's not, it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, so we've gone through potassium now and that's really only restricted if you've got a level above 5 to 5.5, that, that's when you'd be starting to looking at potassium intake. So then phosphate restriction, where, where does that fit in? Okay, so often we don't um, restrict phosphate. Again, it's a bit like potassium in that you don't restrict it until it's clinically indicated. And I find with phosphate, you, you're only really starting to see high phosphates when people are getting quite low um, renal function. So you're looking stage four to five um, when you start to see an elevated phosphate. The thing with phosphate, which is different to potassium, is that potassium is an immediate problem. Most of us are aware that if you have a high potassium or a very low potassium for that matter, that, that's a, um, a, a high risk for having a cardiac event. And so that gets us all a bit nervous. Um, with phosphate though, having a slightly high phosphate, although it's not ideal, it's not going to cause any um, acute harm. And so you can let phosphate levels drift a little bit up before you start to sort of get, get worried about it. But remembering with phosphate, it's more looking at long-term problems such as um, bone metabolism um, that you're going to you know, be most concerned about. That being said, we know as dietitians that phosphate foods tend to go hand in hand with protein foods. So most of the phosphate we get in our diet, unless you're a big drinker um, of Coca-Cola, um, tends to come from 
animal products. So if we're following a moderate protein diet, then normally the phosphate load of the diet is sort of taken, accounted for, um, because you're restricting protein anyway. So most of the clients that I see um, don't really need to change a lot with their food intake if they're already following a moderate protein diet because the phosphate load will be low as well. Okay, so just if I can clarify a couple of things. One is you talked about high phosphate levels. What would you consider a high level? Okay, so high level around about 1.5, 1.6 um, would probably be maybe about 1.5 millimoles per litre yep. when you start to say um, you know, your phosphate level is, is creeping up. Um, but again, I find too, and I think the other thing that comes to it, Jane, I can, I can feel it and you can feel it. We're adding in a lot of restrictions and a lot of mm. things and you can see the poor client's eyes start to glaze <laughs> over um, and there's a point when you're pushing hard enough with people and I think if you start to push everything, they'll walk away. Yeah, yeah. And and what's what's the most important thing here is, is pres preservation of renal function. So the phosphate tends to take care of itself if you're moderating the protein and I kind of feel I'm happy to sit on a 1.5 or 1.6, so long as other things are going along all right and the client's not overwhelmed. Yeah, and if if a uh, person is on phosphate binders, do they still need to watch their phosphate uh, intake? Yes and no. So often phosphate binders aren't often um, prescribed until really um, someone's phosphate level starts to really get up towards even two. Um, and Sometimes they're not prescribed too until after someone has commenced dialysis because remembering when you're dialyzing someone, you're cleaning their blood yeah. and you'll get phosphate removal. So often that sort of a, it happens sort of down the track. Not always. You occasionally, very occasionally might see someone on a phosphate binder, but yes, they probably still do need to, um, you know, watch their phosphate. And that might be just looking for the obvious high phosphate foods. So things like I said, cola beverages, um, nuts, um, offal meats, things that are, you know, particularly high in, in phosphate levels, in phosphate. Yeah. So you've got um, a lot of potentially a lot of dietary restrictions uh, and then you've got this sort of pretty severe underlying disease, particularly at the later stages. Uh, your clients that you see with CKD and diabetes at risk of malnutrition? Yes, absolutely. So um, for many reasons, well, one might be you might have totally overwhelmed them with the diet and they eat nothing. Um, so that that can be a problem. You've got to be a bit careful. Good job. Of that, yes. You don't want to starve um, your client. <laughs> um, so re always remember that. It's important. Um, but yes, because particularly in the later stage of kidney failure, people start to feel unwell. So feeling uremic can feel um, pretty horrible. You get taste changes. You can have nausea. You definitely can get fatigue. Um, and so all of these things can, as we know as dietitians, impact on someone's nutrition. Um, and there comes a point too that you might have to just lift all your, you know, all your well-intended restrictions because the person's not eating much anyway. And you, there's no point restricting someone who's only eating very small amounts. They should just be eating what they can eat. Um, so that sometimes you do get to that point. And, and that also... Um, there is a point too where sometimes you're putting in nutritional supplements or nutrition support products, I think they're routinely called now, um, because the person might be eating so little protein and so little calories because of their uremia that they're um, losing weight and that's making the whole situation worse. Um, and when you're looking at nutrition support products in this patient group, you must always, always look at their biochemistry because that will help direct you as to what you choose. 
And so you obviously there are um, support products out there that are been designed for people with diabetes and there are some support products that have been designed for people with um, impaired renal function or kidney disease. What do you look for um, in a product? Like how do you judge or decide what you're going to choose? Okay. So I pretty much go through my um, mental checklist and number one being is look at the things that are um, renal specific. So look at the patient's biochemistry. Is the potassium high? Is the phosphate high? Okay. Those two things are high we need to start thinking of a renal product, okay? Those two things are normal or even if they're, or they might be low, okay, we can look at everything else. Second thing obviously then is the glycemic control. So, you know, are their blood sugars at 11 or are their blood sugars really well controlled um, or are their blood sugars a bit too low? So then you're thinking, okay, so I've crossed out, maybe I don't need a renal product, but high blood sugars, I really need to think about that. And I need to have a, you know, a carbohydrate modified um, sort of formula choice. So that's sort of where I start to think of things. Yeah. So would you, um, like for the carbohydrate load, for example, if, if you wanted to choose a renal specific supplement because it was more appropriate in terms of its potassium and, and electrolytes, um, to deal with the carbohydrate load, do you spread it out over the day or how do you manage that so absolutely. you don't get a sudden spike? Yeah, absolutely. I dose it out over the day. So, um, you know, and you might even do that up to four times a day. And sometimes that's more acceptable to people because if you're not, as we know, if you're not feeling well and you're presented with a 200 mil, um, you know, quite often these are quite, you know, milky, heavy sort of supplements, you're not going to want to drink it. So having a small dose um, spread out over the day often will meet both objectives in that you have better carbohydrate um, sort of um, control and or glycemic control and also you have more um, tolerance your tolerance is going to be better it can be a bit daunting I think um, for not only the patient but for a dietitian who may not be experienced in this area um, to to cover all of the nutritional aspects um, so for a dietitian who may be looking to um, improve their expertise or upskill in this area, what do you suggest to them for resources or where do they go to? So learn? there's a lot of resources available. I mentioned the Kadoki um, guidelines from 2020, and that's a it's a big document. I won't I won't <laughs> deny that. But if you work your way through and often look at just the relevant pages to yourself, um, that can be very helpful. The Kadoki guidelines, sorry, the Kdigo guidelines are also um, very helpful as well. There's also a lot of resources um, on the internet and I definitely um, use those. I very much um, like the Nemo group in Queensland. I think they're a wonderful group, uh, wonderful um, resources that are available from, from them. Um, most public hospitals, you would hope, I hope that I'm saying this, that we would share documents with um, dietitians if they need them. Um, you know, particularly in, in the CKD world where there isn't a lot of hospital dietitians probably taking on that work due to, you know, funding cuts and the usual issues. Um, so there are, you know, don't be scared to reach out to other dietitians and ask if they have any resources that you could use with clients. I'm always happy to share um, as well and, and happy to take <laughs> from the internet too if I need to. So yeah, I think that's probably the main areas I'd go to. Okay, and we'll put um, the links to those guidelines and to the resources in the show notes for this podcast. So if anyone's interested, they can have a look there. Um, and finally, we've covered sort of so much today, but 
for the dietitians listening, can you give a bit of a, a shopping list or, you know, a checklist of the key dietary aspects to consider when they have a patient with diabetes and CKD sitting in front of them? What, what do you, what's your mental checklist of things you need to go through? Okay, so I think first thing to remember is you're going to have a lot to go through and maybe one session isn't enough. <laughs> That's the first thing. <laughs> Take a deep breath. Second thing, first, then I would look at optimise their diabetes control, okay? And most dietitians are well-skilled to be able to do that. So that's the first thing. Second thing is take a very good dietary history and count your protein. Um, and this can take a little while to learn how to do. Um, you know, back when I was a student, Jane, we had books that we used to look up. <laughs> Nowadays, I have an app sitting next to me and I just um, go through it. And the app that I use is the Easy Diet diary renal. Um, so we can put that for a resource too. So first thing is take a deep breath. Second thing is optimize diabetes control. Third thing, take a good dietary history, work out how much protein and if you actually do need to make some recommendations around protein to get them to around the 0.8 grams per kilogram. And then third thing is have a look at their other electrolytes and see whether you need to do anything with potassium and phosphate. And for those at risk of malnutrition, um, if you have someone who's at that other end of the spectrum? Absolutely. Thank you for reminding me. So if they're at risk of malnutrition, check the biochem. It'll tell you what to do is my um, golden, sort of golden rule with that. If they've got altered electrolytes, think about a, a renal-specific um, supplement. If they have normal electrolytes, you can open the door to every other supplement that is out there. Consider gly glycemic control. If they have... Um, altered electrolytes, then you might have to dose out a, um, kidney, a renal specific um, supplement. If they have good glycemic control, then you've got a bit more freedom then with what you do. Or, or you can use a, sort of a re, sorry, you can use a diabetes specific um, supplement. Yeah. Make it sound so easy, Anne-Marie. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually not that bad. And I think, you know, in all of the diets and things we recommend, it always comes back to common sense and good healthy eating <laughs> yes yeah yeah and i think they are important things to keep in mind and also important things to relate to the client that that's yeah. what you're talking about it's just that it might need some tweaks for their particular condition but it does come back to a, a healthy eating base um, absolutely so look thank you thanks so much for your time today and maria you've given us a lot of information i think it'll be particularly helpful for those dietitians who don't work with these clients regularly or who are new into the area or are just interested in kidney disease and, and want to expand their knowledge there. Um, and as I mentioned, we'll add the list of references to the show notes. And we would really like to thank Abbott for supporting this podcast episode. And it was lovely to chat to you. Likewise, Jane. So nice to see you again. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. To get all of the links and resources we discussed through this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review for us and a rating on the Apple Podcast app. Tell us what you thought about this episode, what you learned, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We really value hearing from you and we really value your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.